And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to meet tonight, Lord, to consider your word and to consider how to convey your word to, to others through our, our, our actions and our words. And so we pray that we would each uh, gain an insight, Lord, into exactly what that would look like uh, as, as Rabbi Heim teaches us. We pray you would speak through him to each one of us in Yeshua's name. Amen. We have uh, called a series Walking a Mile in Someone's Moccasins. Um, not an original title. I'm sure you know that. Um, and the perspective, um, as I hope you've been seeing for the last several months, is our desire to encourage each other uh, to engage in what Yeshua told us to do. The prime directive is, William? Sorry? The prime directive that I, we've been given. I was zoning out. Okay, well, we'll forgive context. you. Go into all the world and make disciples. Okay? So people usually, um, in my mind, wrongly... Uh, interpret that to be a marketing challenge. You know, you uh, uh, you have a good product, and you learn a basic shtick, how to go and reduce it into five minutes worth of conversation, and how to arm wrestle somebody so that they know that whatever it is that they that they believe is wrong, and that they need to believe what it is that you believe. And that's usually the, uh, in my mind, the false notion of what it means to share the good news of Yeshua. Um, because among other things, uh, joy needs to be in there somewhere. And if what we are feeling is guilt, obligation, then trust me, that's going to come forth. Um, and if we are, uh, if we do what we do because of that, people will sense that. Um, so walking a mile in Jewish, in moccasins period, and by the way, uh, as you've seen and you will see, um, our focus has not been exclusively on communicating Yeshua with, with a Jewish audience. Um, our basic conviction is that if you do, if you are geared and understand how to communicate your show with a Jewish audience, more likely, um, uh, typically, you'll be able to be sensitized to communicate Yeshua uh, with just about anybody. How how good, um, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, who proclaim that your God is here. And I had a, an interesting conversation with my daughter uh, this past, past couple of days that uh, she was rattled by what took place in Lost Wages uh, a week ago. And she was very distressed by people's idiotic approach to the issue of, well, we need more guns, we need less guns, we need more laws, we need less laws. And she and I did some 
conversation on Facebook, and she finally said, what society needs is to turn back to God, which, which I thought was profound for someone who had been kind of out there uh, on the fringes spiritually. And uh, then to top it off, she called me tonight and, and said that she had a personal encounter with God in which she heard him say to her, uh, I love you, my child. And that seemed to uh, set the stage for her that she no longer felt, you know, the need of, oh, what do we do? How, how do we uh, change society and so on? She experienced the presence of God in such a way that she felt like she knew that he had all the answers. He has all the answers. And so we are, we are confronting uh, a society that is increasingly godless. Um, and one of the responses for believers um, is to um, is is to put ourselves in a circle of wagons. You know, you know the uh, the story that when people were coming across this country and they were attacked by by savages, they would bring their wagons together and they would fight off the the hostile people. And we sometimes have that approach. And if anything, if we understand the fact that the kingdom of God advances in the face of opposition, then we will understand that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That when we see society around us crumbling morally, that that should give us a greater impetus to seek the Lord for the kind of changes he wants to bring about. And the biggest change, of course, is that people need to hear the good news. They need to know that there is such a thing as good news. And that's not found in, in people gathering together and trying to come up with all kinds of strategies, but simply turning back to God. And so the notion of walking a mile in someone's moccasins simply means doing what it is that Yeshua and the apostles did. Uh, you don't see them grabbing, you, you don't see Yeshua or the apostles grabbing anybody by the collar and giving them some kind of a shtick. Uh, but rather you see that in each situation they are engaged with them based on who they are. And we started this series, if you recall, talking about the Yeshua and the Samaritan woman that was definitely off screen uh, for a first century rabbi who was not supposed to talk to women to begin with, not definitely not supposed to talk to a Samaritan woman. And yet what you see is Yeshua starting the conversation by simply talking to her about what she knew, and that is water. And so this has been our approach, and the fancy name for that is the law of apperception, which simply means when God brings a person into your, into your life, into your uh, situation, and gives you a, uh, a divine appointment, so to speak, that what you want to be able to discern and and be sensitive to is 
where the other person is and understand who they are and their spiritual needs and their spiritual values and then endeavor by the Spirit of God to take them from where they know to what it is that they don't know. Now obviously a major part of that is that we often don't feel like it. You know what I'm saying? You get up in the morning, you've not had a good night's sleep, um, your wife is grouchy at you, not you Bill, um, and, uh, and your kids are having fits and so on and so forth and you say, God, I just want to get through this day. You know, I have this, 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 and this to do. And respectfully, I have my work to do. And your business will do when I have time. And so the challenge for us is what we find Paul saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, and this is, this is King James. Uh, which kind of makes you feel like, okay, instant coffee. No, uh, be instant in season and out of season simply means be prepared. Be prepared at a time when you feel ready and up for it and at times when you don't feel ready and up for it because I have news for you folks. The times when we feel the least prepared is the time when God is most inclined to use us. Why? Hmm? It gives him glory, not, not us. Gives him glory, not us. That's precisely it. Because the focus is not on us and what we can do and what we think, but rather the focus is on God. And somehow in the midst of the, during the times when we feel uh, particularly ill-equipped, is that when God can somehow open our mouth and what comes out is not our brilliant ideas, but rather what comes out is God's Word. And, and it's really hard for us to get our arms around because our focus is so much on us, which typically means either we think well of ourselves, too well of ourselves, or more often than not, we think poorly of ourselves, and we look at other people and we say, God, uh, they're so much more clever than I am, and... How on earth can I communicate to them? If I open my mouth, uh, they will run me over and so on and so forth. Again, where's the emphasis? On us. And so the challenge then is to learn that this process is something that has to be driven and led by the Ruach, by the Spirit of God. Um, and one of the things, not one of the things, what you find in the book of Acts over and over and over and over and over again is that all of these guys who went out and were communicating Yeshua were driven and led and inspired by the Spirit of God. Everybody. Everybody. Um, and so the results is, the results are rather that um, people are more inclined to hear from God rather than hear from us. Then, of course, there are human factors, that willingness to be uh, equipped and prepared and do our part. So tonight, uh, we'll be looking at 
Acts 13, and then the next few weeks, uh, and this is a synagogue setting, then we'll be looking at uh, Paul in, in Athens with the philosophers, and, and, and then we'll, uh, excuse me, we'll be looking at uh, Paul in front of the pagans, uh, then Paul in front of the philosophers in Athens, and Paul in front of the Sanhedrin, and and Rabbi David will, uh, a week after that, talk to us about uh, how do you interact with people who say, I'm an agnostic, I don't know what I believe, which is like, what, 80% of the population today? So, let's uh, read uh, Acts chapter 13. And we'll get started with, with the setting, which is verses 1 to 16. And I need someone who will bellow uh, these verses. And uh, Joy, you look like someone who's wanting to volunteer tonight. <laughs> 1 16? Yes. Now in the Antioch community, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrenian, Manan brought up since childhood with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Ruach HaKodesh said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting, praying, and laying hands on them, they sent them off. So sent out by the Ruach, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as a helper. When they had gone throughout the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a man who was a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar Yeshua. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also Paul, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, fixed his gaze on him and said, O you full of all deceit and trickery, son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind and not see the sun for a while. Immediately cloudiness and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. When he saw what had happened, the whole council believed, because he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Setting sail from Paphos, Paul's company came to Perga in Pamphylia. John left him and returned to Jerusalem. But they passed on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. Entering the synagogue at the sh on the Shabbat, they sat down. After the reading of the Torah and the prophets, the synagogue leaders sent to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, speak. Why don't you pause there? Thank you, Joy. Uh, by the way, uh, to be absolutely a purist, it's Ruach HaKodesh. Not HaKodesh. All right, now that we've got that out of the way. Um, all right. Let's, let's look at the, at the background, the setting that's taking place here. Okay. Um, and I was going to inflict upon you one of my maps, but I think I will uh, avoid that. You like maps. Huh? You like, like maps? Yeah, we do. 
spills over actually um, and of course you have Greece over here and Rome and, and Italy over here the boot I don't know how to draw the boot but uh, not quite all right so um, they start out from a place called Antioch and by the way there were there was more than one Antioch uh, Antioch of course was taken after the name of Antiochus, okay? Um, and this particular Antioch was roughly where, um, in, in modern-day Turkey, um, and, and uh, remember that Paul came from these parts, and right in here, this island called Cyprus, um, and we know that Barnabas came from Cyprus. By the way, his name was really not Barnabas. That was a nickname. His, his given name was Joseph or Joseph the Levite. He was some tribe of Levi. Uh, they called him Barnabas because he was an encourager. So, whereas he wanted to encourage, Paul was the Mack truck who wanted to press forward. Different gifts, and sometimes the gifts clash, and that's exactly what happened. So, do we, do we know where they hooked up together? Did they just meet when Paul was on the road? Or? They, they met um, in Jerusalem, actually, uh, because Paul... Paul came to Jerusalem and everybody goes, I don't know who this guy is, don't want to know. We've heard awful stories about him, get away from here. Uh, and Barnabas, um, because he is the encourager, takes Paul, introduces him, and everybody chills and they say, okay, Paul is not such an evil person. They end up here uh, in Antioch where you have a number of people. And remember that there is ferment going on. It's, things are exciting. Things are moving. The Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of stuff. And so they are fasting and praying. And what is the result of their fasting and praying? Yes, but before we get to that. Spirit, what? Talks to them. Talks to them, meaning whom? The congregation. The entire congregation. And the Spirit says what? Set apart to be fallen on What does that suggest, folks, about who the Holy Spirit is? A person. So if I hear someone refer to the Ruch HaKodesh as an it, I'm going to throw a, a, a marker at you. 
It, it's simply, and again, this is part of the mystery of who God is. Okay? The Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, is someone who communicates emotions and communicates will and intellect, just as we have with the Father and with Yeshua. The Holy Spirit says, take these guys and separate them. Now, why Barnabas and why Saul? Well, they were bold, okay. Why would you want someone like Barnabas on this trip? If, if he comes from this island called Cyprus. Huge Jewish community. Okay, because it talks about the fact that as they traveled, they went to the... Not synagogue... Synagogues, plural. In this little island, you have a ward of synagogues, which means a huge Jewish population. And if Barnabas comes from this island where you have a huge Jewish population, and if he's a Levite, what, what does that suggest about how Barnabas might be equipped to do the to do this work. Anybody? Well, it's not so much about the money, the funds, but here you have a guy who grew up like Paul to some extent, who grew up in in a dual culture. Uh, Greek, by the way, was the, the language everybody spoke. So he grew up with the Gentile culture around, but he was a Levite. And in the synagogue, who, who does the ironic benediction? Levites. Okay? And so Paul and Barnabas is equipped. What about Paul? Why would the Holy Spirit select Paul to, for this job? He used to be a persecutor, okay. What perspective does that bring? Well, he'd be able to fend off some of the arguments against believing in Yeshua. And and that's part of what you, what you see with Paul. He's able to reason with people in the synagogue. Um, what kind of a culture did Paul grew up uh, in? He was a student of Gamaliel. Ah, student Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? Gamaliel. Grandson, I think, of Hillel. Yes, he was a grandson of Hillel, but he was one of the big, big, big shots of traditional Judaism. He was one of the high up in the Sanhedrin, which was Tracy. What are the, the judges, the courts, the Supreme Court? Supreme Court. Supreme Court of, of anything and everything having to do with Jewish people. So Paul was schooled in that, but he was also, what about his background uh, in a culture around? But he was schooled in the culture around him as well. I mean, he's a Roman citizen. 
He was a Roman citizen. Remember in Acts 16, when, when they go to beat him, he says, uh-uh, you can't do that. Why? Because I'm a Roman citizen. If you were to beat a Roman citizen, uh, you would be in bad shape. And he also knew enough about Greek culture. You will see in, in a couple of weeks when he's in Athens, he quotes from the Greek poets. So he's aware of what's going on. So, you know, when God selects someone for a particular job, he has a specific purpose. He knows what he's doing, right? Okay. So they they get up and they leave and they travel. And by the way, part of the picture, obviously, is the human. Uh, you have to understand that uh, it's not like getting in a car going on I-70 or I-25. You're going on roads that sometimes work, sometimes didn't work. Sometimes you travel on these Roman roads that were well established, sometimes you didn't. And if it was raining and muddy, you were stuck. Uh, also, and, and I can't do topography, so you have to believe me. Um, when you start out here in Antioch, uh, and you go to Sidian Antioch, you're coming uh, not just north, but but you're uh, you're coming to a place that's six that's 3,600 feet in elevation. What does that suggest to you? I mean, if you live in here in Colorado for a while. It's rocky and dangerous. Rocky, dangerous. High. Um, colder. Snow. You know, you're looking at snow. You're looking at all kinds of... So uh, there are those factors that have to be considered. So when, when they travel... We don't see the details exactly why it is that they go from here to here to here. But when they travel, they travel because there's the Spirit of God leading them. Right? They're filled with the Spirit. And there's the human factors that are involved. Uh, again, Barnabas comes from here. And they, they start their ministry here. And we see somebody named Sergius Paulus, who was a proconsul. What is a proconsul? Roman, he was a governor of this area. And there's good connection, which goes to show you that when God is at work, there are good connections, right? He opens doors. Otherwise, you try to bust the door down, it, it won't open. Um, apparently, Sergius Paulus came from here and he probably gave them letters of reference so that when they would come to Obsidian of Antioch they would be safe and, and they they would have connections. So um, they're traveling. Uh, again, part of the, the picture is, is that they're traveling by boat and you have all kinds of factors involved with that, you know. Um, so they they come they come to uh, Antioch and they come to the synagogue. Now let me ask you a real ignorant question that at other places uh, would not be so ignorant. 
Why do they come to the synagogue on the Shabbat? Huh? It's a Jewish concept. Oh, Jewish custom. Okay. They have a chance to give a drush. Okay. Okay, so there is a strategic purpose for it. But folks, think about the, the simple reality. What does a Jew, an observant Jew, do on Shabbat? Goes to the synagogue. They don't have to stop and say, oh, let's see, let me sit down and strategize what, what we're going to do. Shabbat, they go to the shul, to the synagogue. And it's very clear that they, Paul starts out by being part of the congregation. He doesn't barge in and say, yo, uh, I am a, a student of Gamaliel and I have something to tell you. No, he sits down. And at that point, the uh, uh, rulers of the synagogue, possibly a rabbi, sees that they're from out of town, and they say, Achim, brothers, which is, you know, hermanos, uh, come and tell us, come talk to us if you have something that would be encouraging to us. Are you saying then you don't think that, that Paul and Barnabas went there saying, okay, this would be a great chance for us to talk? You think it was just they were going there as they normally would, and then this opportunity presented itself? Look, it's, it's, we, and this is, by the way, how folks in the church typically view this. They view this as, as their strategy. Um, the synagogue is where you'd have people who are literate in scripture and who would know something about Messiah. Uh, you would have Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. So that's smart strategically. However, there's a basic problem if you only say that because that implies that that's the only reason they would go to synagogue. Um, and also, when you think about it, it also presents a very artificial view of life that you, you are perpetually thinking, okay, I need to go here so that I can co communicate the good news of Yeshua. Rather, it's more of you are doing, you're taking care of business and being instant, being prepared in all circumstances. So you don't go to the store and say, I'm going to reach someone for Yeshua. I'm going to shove the, the, the good news down their throat. But you go to the store, you go to the library, you, you go wherever it is you go, and you say, Lord, would you please open doors for me to talk wherever it is I go? question if I may. You may. Um, how is this in the book run? I mean... How, first of all, would they know, is the synagogue so small that they could tell these are strangers, A? How would they even think of asking these men? Is it because Barnabas was known or something, they'd think of asking the men to come and talk? I mean, we don't normally have a stranger come in and say, hey, come up and talk. Well, um, we don't know the size of the synagogue. It's, uh, what you need to understand is that each area had its own dialect. They, they spoke Greek, but they probably spoke 
their own uh, dialect, their own language. Uh, we see that in chapter 14, where the language is called Lycaonian. Uh, and so it's just like, you know, one of us uh, going to Amarillo, Texas, and talking, and they say, where is that damn Yankee from? Uh, and they would be able, they would be able to pick you off by by how you spoke. And it's quite likely that Paul and Barnabas didn't get off the trail and go right away to the synagogue. I mean, it's quite likely, as was their custom, that they would first of all go to the agora. Agora was the marketplace. You know, they would. Uh, buy their pork chops or whatever it is they were going to eat there. Um, and they would ask where the synagogue is and so on and so forth. Yeah? Don't you suppose they wore uh, yarmulke and a prayer shawl and all that stuff, the things that the Jew would wear in the synagogue? Uh, no. For a couple of reasons. First of all, the yarmulke was not an established uh, about 500 years ago only, and they certainly did not wear a prayer shawl. Uh, it's possible that they had fringes, tzitziot, uh, but I would say, you know, look, part of it is is being a member of the tribe. You know, after a while, you learn you learn to see people's face and and how they talk. They talk with hands and all of this, and you say, ah, oh, this guy's a Jew. <clears throat> uh, again, as as much as anything. Uh, they don't come to the synagogue right off the bat. They come after probably being in the uh, the agora and so on and so forth. So one way or the other, um, the leaders knew who they were, and they invited them to come. And, and as you say, this is not something you do for just any Tom, Dick, and Harry, uh, because there was an order. The order basically involved reading from the Torah, reading from the prophets, and there was a, uh, a guy called Meturgeman who would translate from, uh, from Hebrew, either into Aramaic or most, more likely to Greek, and would give an explanation. Um, and then they would have some prayers. Not, we don't know of a ton of prayers, but there were some prayers uh, and then typically somebody would be asked to stand up and give a drash, a homily. So there was definitely an order. Uh, we see that in Luke chapter 4 with Yeshua in the synagogue uh, in Nazareth. You see it here. So again, all that was something that God used, the humanity, the human stuff, uh, in order to get people's attention. Uh, so I was rather forceful with you, Maurice, because that's often the approach that we hear from fellow believers in the church, that they basically did what they did as a window dressing. In other words, if, if, I, if I was not here to share the gospel, the, the good news, I would not find myself in a synagogue. But I go to the synagogue only for strategic reasons. And that's problematic because it, it conveys uh, an attitude of uh, lack of integrity on the part of, of Paul and the Barnabas and those guys. Okay.
So they get up and they speak, and let's read. My goodness. Um, okay, we're, we're going to condense um, the sermon. So let's pick up, um, let's see, verse uh, 17. And, and read um, verse 17 to 30. Forty-one. That's a big chunk, but let's let's go ahead and read it. Pauline, you look like you're wanting to read. Okay. <laughs> the God of uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose their fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an outstretched arm, he led them out of there. For about forty years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He gave their land as an, as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David to be their king. He also testified about him and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. From this man's seed, in keeping with his promise, God brought to Israel a Savior, Yeshua. Before his coming, John had proclaimed an immersion of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his service, he said, What do you suppose me to be? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family, family of Abraham, and those among you who are God-fearers, it is to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, not recognizing him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Shabbat, fulfilled these words by condemning him. Though they found no charge worthy of a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now with his witnesses to the people. And we proclaim to you good news. The promise to the fathers has arrived. For God has fulfilled this promise to the children, to us, by raising up Yeshua, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. But since you raised him up from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not permit your holy one to see decay. For after David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he went to sleep and was laid with his fathers and saw decay. But the one whom God raised up did not see decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this one is proclaimed to you the removal of sins, including all those from which you could not be set right by the Torah of Moses. Through this one, everyone who keeps trusting is made righteous. Be careful, then, so that what is said in the prophets may not come upon you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and banished. 
vanish away. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you will never believe, even if someone tells it to you in detail. Thanks. Now, none of us would be able to go to a modern-day synagogue and do this. For obvious reasons. Um, and there's a lot that Paul is saying here. Um, and as I pointed out at the beginning, the emphasis is not to impress people with his knowledge. What's the focus of, of Paul's drash or, or his homily? To see the good news and specifically... So, he, whatever it is that he begins, he wants to end up with the good news. And, and you find that with all the other sermons uh, in the book of Acts. You start out with this, and you end up with the resurrection. You start out with this, you end up with the resurrection. So, um, first of all, he begins with shared history. In other words... Um, God has been working with our people from way back. Why is that important for the listeners to hear? Stringing the pearls. We'll get to stringing of the pearls. Someone is listening. All right. Uh, before we get to stringing of pearls, why is that important for that particular audience to take them uh, to to take a uh, uh, kaleidoscope kaleidoscope uh, uh, picture of what God was doing in the past. The fulfilling of the scriptures of, of, that, that would be the promised one from the line of David. <clears throat> and, that's, and that's exactly it. Uh, that whatever Paul is going to say about the good news, about the resurrection, people need to understand, this particular audience need, needed to understand that it didn't come in a vacuum. In other words, it was part of what God had been doing all along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and so on. Um, then, of course, he has to talk about David. Why? Somebody else, Mary. Well, Messiah is from the seed of David. Okay, because everybody knew in those days that Messiah would be the son of David. So you have to make the connection with David in order to make the connection with Messiah. Okay? Now, in English, you don't get that. Um, probably not in Greek either, uh, although I'm not going to uh, twist your brains or mine. But in Hebrew, uh, Savior is Moshia. And so... You see that there is a play on words between Yeshua and Moshiach. God gave you a Moshiach whose name is Yeshua. Just like what we find in, in Matthew chapter 1. Um, the virgin will be a child and you will call his name Yeshua. For he will save Yoshia. Yeshua, Yoshia. See, it works in Hebrew. It doesn't work in English. Um, so that's what that's what uh, Paul then talks about the need for Messiah. People in in that audience they understood about Messiah. Why? Because they were under Roman rule and they hated the Romans and 
they understood that that God would need to do something to set them free from the Romans. Why why the resurrection? Steve is thinking. Oh, were they looking forward to the resurrection? Good question. Um, no, but remember that what the communication of the good news has to take a person from what they know to what they don't know. Now, Paul is going to show them from the scripture, from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that it talks about the resurrection. And they did believe in the resurrection. By the way, uh, you may or may not know that part of the morning prayers today, part of the morning uh, prayers in the, in the prayer book speaks about the fact that God um, raises the dead, uh, raises people from the dead. I believe in perfect faith in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, so that's always been something that was taught by Jewish people, but what Paul wants to do is connect what they know with what they don't know, and that is not just resurrection in general terms, but resurrection of Messiah specifically. And remember, for us, resurrection is one of the two key aspects of what the good news is about. You know, and if, I, if we were to take a show of hands here and ask, when was the last time you talked about the resurrection? Um, I don't know that any of us would be able to say, oh yeah, I, I talk about the resurrection. Um, we don't really understand the fact that the resurrection has to be an integral part of, of who we are because if you don't have the resurrection... 1 Corinthians 15, your, your faith is worthless. Why? Because you believe in the dead Messiah. And he talks over and over again about decay. You're going to decay if you don't have Yeshua resurrected. Right. You have a dead Messiah type or pseudo-Messiah. And also, it's not just about that. It's the fact that with the resurrection... God unleashed all kinds of power, and that's where you and I have the power to live a life that's pleasing to God, from the Spirit of God. That's come through through the resurrection. Somehow, through the resurrection, you and I have power to live for God. Otherwise, it's just another religion. You know, God, God says, this is what I want you to do, and we try to do it, end of story. Just like Islam, Buddhism, whatever. Uh, with the resurrection, there is power. And so he wants to get them to understand the resurrection because that's what the good news is about. Now, then he, did you catch the fulfillment words? There were words that talked about in verse 27. William. Yes. Verse 27. Uh, what the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did, though they did not realize it, was in fact fulfill the prophecies read on every Sabbath. 
And then would you jump down to 33? We have come here to tell you the good news that the promise made to our ancestors has come about. God has fulfilled it to their children by raising Jesus from the dead. Okay. Now, again, remember, folks, that these people are Jews who are living in exile. Okay. What does that suggest to you about how they view God and what it means to be a Jew? The fact that they're living in exile... What does that suggest? God has rejected them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a basic question in your mind about, is God really for us? And if so, how come we are in exile? And so that is one of the reasons why Paul talks about the fulfillment. In other words, yes, you are in exile. However, God hasn't forgotten about Israel and his promises that he made to, to the people Yeshua, even if, even in his death, uh, is part of the fulfillment of the prophecies. And of course, his resurrection. Now, then, then we come to the pearl of the string of pearls. Would you tell us about the string of pearls? Paul brings the uh, history of the Tanakh into the fulfillment of Yeshua and his resurrection. It ties it together, it's truly pearl. Right. And that's that was typically uh, an argument that you made if you were a rabbi worth their salt. You made the statement and then you said, oh, it's not just me. And let me tell you, it, it says that in scripture. Um, and you find that, by the way, a lot in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and chapter 2, this notion of string of pearls, where you have the writer saying, okay, let me make a statement, and then here is the evidence for it from, from the Tanakh, from the scripture. And the notion of string of pearls is the short little statements that seem to be out of context, pulled from here, 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 that people would put together uh, to validate their, their argument. And so Paul is saying, okay, uh, Messiah had to rise from the dead, and here is Psalm 2, and here is Isaiah 55, and here is Psalm, Psalm 16. I will were not... They, were they thinking, like, did they know that Psalm because he had to say it? So it's a psalm. And that's a good question. Uh, typically you had the scroll of the Torah, and you had scrolls of uh, the prophets... And, and the writings, so for example, you notice that here, uh, he refers specifically, the first one, he refers to Psalms. Then the other place he says, and somewhere else, it says such and such. So, again, you have to understand that in those days, they didn't have chapter and verse and so on. Um the, they would have known, you bet. Yeah, they, they heard the Psalms uh, taught since they were kids. Um, so, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says to them, and this is where it gets kind of sharp. He says to them, okay, you're hearing all this. Now, what are you going to do about it? Which is not exactly 
politically correct. Um, I don't think any of us would share with someone and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, unless the Spirit of God really says, be pointed that we don't do that. But uh, Paul definitely says that to them. Uh, and a bunch of them are intrigued or believe to some extent. And by the way, remember when you see the word believe here, it doesn't mean that they've signed their life over to, to Yeshua as Lord and, and, and Master. They're in, they're in process. You know, like uh, to some extent, like most of us are. And they say, come back and talk to us some more. We like it. This is pretty cool. And they come back and uh, the Jews get, get huffy. Now, again, I understand that uh, some of the people getting this record are probably not Jews, probably Gentiles of one kind or another. He has to explain to them that there was a bunch of Jewish opposition. I don't believe that Luke is saying that all the Jews were opposed, but enough of the Jews who had connections with leading members of the community got up in arms and, and basically um, tried to run Paul on, on a rail. And what does Paul do? Let's read the rest of it and then we'll finish with that. And verse 45 to 52. Kathy, if you have that, would you read it, please? And I do have the um, amplified, so... That's all right. We'll, okay. we'll roll with it. Okay. But when the Jews saw the crowds filled with envy and jealousy, they contradicted what was said by Paul and talked abusively, reviling and slandering him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out plainly and boldly, saying, It is necessary that God's message concerning salvation through Christ should be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it from you, you pass this judgment on yourselves that you are unworthy of eternal life, and out of your own mouth you will be judged. Now, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, and then in parentheses, he that. How far did you say? Or till the 52. end? 52. Okay. For so the Lord has charged us, saying, I have set, set you to be a light for the Gentiles, the heathen, that you may bring eternal salvation to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard, they rejoiced and glorified, praised and gave thanks for the word of God. And as many as were destined, appointed, and ordained to eternal life, believed, adhered to, trusted in, and relied on Jesus as the Christ and their Savior. And so the word of the Lord concerning eternal salvation through Christ scattered and spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews stirred up and devout up the devout women of high rank and the outstanding men of the town and instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their boundaries. But the apostles shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled throughout their souls with joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay. So which disciples are we talking about here? Gentile disciples. Well, Gentile disciples and Jews as well. We cannot assume. There's no reason to assume that the entire Jewish community here was, was opposed to the message. There's obviously something going on with the Jewish members 
and with the God-fearers and with the rank pagans. And, uh, and also, so part of, the, part of the misconception here is that Paul says, now we're turning to the Gentiles, meaning that from here on in the book of Acts, he has nothing to say to the Jewish community. Absolutely wrong, because you see again and again and again and again where Paul goes, Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas go someplace, where is the first place they go? They go to the synagogue. As, in fact, in, in uh, Acts 17.2, when they come to Thessalonica, they went to the synagogue as was their custom. Okay? So when they shake the dust, what's that all about? Well, it well, but the, the flip side of that is, uh, you don't want me, I'm gone. And it's not so much you don't want me, you don't want a message. You reject a message. And by the way, remember in Matthew 10, Yeshua says to those that he sent out, if you speak and and they they uh, they reject, shake the dust off. Now. I want to take just a couple of minutes and and uh, and bring a couple of things together. First of all, we're seeing the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit throughout this. And whenever you see the phrase "they spoke boldly," that's always code for the disciples being empowered by the Spirit of God. That in the book of Acts, when you see they were filled with the Spirit, that inevitably what that has to do with is not speaking tongues, but it has to do with being empowered to speak the Word of God effectively. So what does that suggest to us? Well, we simply come with humility and say, Lord, would you fill me with your Spirit so I can say whatever it is you want me to say? not about me, my cleverness, it's about your word, so fill me with your spirit so I can speak boldly. Boldly, by the way, has to do with freely, okay? Um, and you go where God opens doors for you, where God opens doors for you. And you wait to see what God does in, in a particular situation. And you don't have anything to prove to anybody. And if you come across somebody who is obnoxious, then you realize that your assignment for the moment is complete with that particular individual. That whatever God will do or will not do with that person, it's, it's his business. And that you are required to be receptive and prepared to do what he leads you to do in a particular situation. But if the door is slammed shut, you can't open it. God has to open it. And yes, there are times when people are hardened, but even then, even then, we're praying tonight for the brother of one of our women whose statement was, I am an atheist. Well, um, Recently, this atheist has had some real intense conversations about Yeshua, and he's also shown up at services a couple times. 
All that to say, God is able. You know, just look at yourself and where God has taken you from and how absolutely brilliant spiritually you, you were and how that the Lord reached down to grab you and, and brought you into the kingdom. So recognize the fact that the Lord wants to do that for others and simply say, Lord, I'm willing. And be receptive to the Spirit of God directing you and then see what happens. All right. Then uh, next time we'll, we'll talk about the pagans, which is very tw 21st century. All right. Uh, Steve, would you finish for us? Amen.